Entrepreneurship is not a destination. It's a journey. It's not for everyone. It's not easy. It, it's hard. Welcome to the best of the second quarter of the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. Today, we're looking back at some of the most impactful conversations over the past several months. From Shark Tank to the Harlem Globetrotters of baseball, this episode has it all. The whole idea of being an entrepreneur is to get to a place in your life where you do not have to pick up the phone when it rings, that nobody has control over your destiny anymore. If the phone is ringing and you don't want to answer it, you don't have to. I'm Michael Mogul, founder and CEO of Crisp, the nation's number one law firm growth company. I've built my business through practice, not theory. Crisp started with just $500 to my name and has grown to over eight figures in revenue over the last few years, earning a spot on the Inc. 500 list of the fastest growing private companies in America. Our approach has been to take everything we've learned about generating massive growth within our own organization and help the country's most ambitious and committed law firm owners do the same for theirs. In each episode of this podcast, I sit down with innovative market leaders from the legal industry and beyond to learn from those who thrive in the face of adversity, challenge the status quo, and define what it means to be a true game changer. Today, we're looking back at our conversations with renowned trucking attorney, David Craig, the owner of the Savannah Bananas and marketing expert, Jesse Cole, entrepreneur and investor on ABC's Shark Tank, Kevin O'Leary, and the best-selling author and executive director of the Flow Research Collective, Stephen Kotler. Take an ordinary person, put them on a path to use the tools of big performance to accomplish capital I impossible. And as soon as you do one, Right, anybody who's had a little bit of success knows this. You're like, oh shit, I did that. What else could I do? That's coming up on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. Before we begin today's episode, I want to remind you that we aren't beholden to any sponsors or run any ads on this podcast. This allows us to present all of our episodes raw and unfiltered. I'm not going to push any made-to-order meal services on you or try to save you any money on your car insurance. That being said, I have one small request. If you receive any value from this podcast, please give it a five-star review. Pay the fee so we can keep this podcast free. As we kick things off, we revisit the conversation I had with David Craig, one of the most accomplished trucking attorneys in the nation and the managing partner of Craig Kelly and Faultless. He's devoted his career to educating, empowering, and making a positive impact in the lives of as many people as possible. During our conversation, David discussed a pivotal moment in 2017, which drastically changed his life and would go on to shape the legacy he aims to leave behind. You know, it was the September 11th. I was out doing a truck inspection. I had been in pain for days, and well, actually weeks, Pain had got so bad that I could barely stand up. My wife kept saying, you need to go to the hospital. I wouldn't go. It was a Saturday truck inspection. I'm going out to do it. My wife says, no, you need to go to the hospital. I said, no, I'm going to do it. She's like, well, then I'm going with you because I'm afraid you can't even drive. So she went with me, sat in my truck. I went and did the inspection. When we got done, she's like, would you mind just going in and get, I bet you just need an IV. So she tricked me. She's like, I think, okay, well, maybe I just need an IV. I'll be good to go. I went in, turns out that I had stage three colon cancer. They had to do emergency surgery on me. I had a lot of complications. I was in the hospital for three and a half weeks with a pipe down my throat for part of that time. And at that point, they couldn't tell me whether I was going to live or die. And, you know, you reflect on something like that. And the crazy thing was, and this is the honest God truth, I wasn't worried about me. I mean, I've really enjoyed my life. I've enjoyed every aspect of it. I'm happily married. I'm married to the lady that I met when she was 15. We've been married all these years. I got three wonderful kids. But where I was at, I would certainly miss my kids, and I would feel badly for what how that would affect them. But we weren't where I needed to be. And I guess there's different ways to look at it. I looked at it and said, 
I'm going to step things up. I'm going to make my firm grow. I'm going to make sure my firm survives without me because my fear was my firm would not survive without me. It would break up. It would go to, out of business. And you're like, my gosh, you work so hard to get to a certain point in your life. And then all of a sudden you lose all of that. It just disappears. And so I stopped and I honestly was running meetings out of the hospital. So I had a room next to my room. I would go out with IVs and my CFOs would come in. Meet. I started turning the page while I was in the hospital saying, here's the plans I'm going to make to grow this business and move forward. And before I ever even got out of there, before I even knew whether I was going to survive or not survive. And then I went through two more surgeries. And the bad thing about the, our business is the word started leaking that I was sick. And so defense lawyers were saying, well, Dave won't show up. Dave's dying. I remember going into a huge mediation and, you know, I went in, I could barely talk because of the thing that had been down my throat. I was really weak. I sat with my client and the defense lawyer, and we had mediated, this is a second mediation, and the defense lawyer came out and asked the mediator, said, I want to see David. And then the mediator's like, why would you want to see David? He said, I just want to see him. And so I walked out and <laughs> he goes, you're not looking so good. And I said, you know, I said, but you know me well enough to know that my ideal way of dying is in a courtroom after the jury goes back and takes the verdict. <laughs> and I go, so I'm going to show up and I will be there and I will, unless I don't make it. And then they settle with this, thank goodness. But I had a trial and I tried it. I went into a trial case. I could barely walk. I could barely talk. Tried another one where I got like a $1.7 million verdict on a case that was a really small case and that they offered a 30000 on. But, you know, you, you do those things because you love it. And But that did change the way I looked at life. Um, I looked at it and said, okay, you don't know what tomorrow brings. And I accelerated. It wasn't long after that that I was at a conference down in Miami where I decided to hook up with Crisp and start doing business with Crisp. But we looked at it and said, we need to grow our business so that this business survives. And we've now started selling shares out to my younger attorneys so that they will be invested in and grow. I started immediately sent all my lawyers out to the best trial schools. And so, yeah, we've accelerated our growth. And it probably, so it was really a blessing. It's a blessing in a couple of ways. One is that, again, I look at it and say, you know, I now know how my clients feel. Clients that are sitting in the hospital not, not sure whether they're gonna live or die. I know what they're going through. I can relate better to them. I can probably communicate that better to a jury, having lived it. So I think I'm very grateful that I got to have that experience. In addition, it helped me look differently at our business. David, it, it, and by the way, what I'm about to say, I say this as a compliment, and I say this all respectfully, but in the years that I've known you, I have seen you as an obsessed individual, like meaning that you're not kind of dipping your toe into anything. I mean, it, everything from being obsessed with preparing for trial in the best way possible, you're an avid reader, you're an avid learner, all these different things. I'm just curious over the years, like what's that been like for the people around you, right? So whether it's your family, your team members, have they always been very supportive of that or have there been any challenges? Luckily, again, there was an advantage to my wife knowing me young because I've always been that way. I've always been aggressive at learning, knowing, I've always been very motivated, and so she knew what she was getting into. But I do think that it can be challenging. It can, can be challenging for your employees. It can be challenging for your family. I take a lot of pride in that throughout my, my career. To be successful, you have to be successful in business, but some people just want to be successful in business and not in life. And so to me, success means that I have a successful family, 
a successful you know, relationship with my friends, successful business. And so I've always tried to take the time. If I had a trial, then they know that my wife says, you know, go stay at a hotel, get away from the house. <laughs> You're not pleasant to be around. And so they know that when it's time for me to focus on something else, that's what I do. But I work really hard to make it up when the other times. And same way with my employees. My employees know I very rarely shut my door, but when my door's shut, there's a reason and I'm working on something that I really can't be bothered about. I will say that it can be tough. But I think that if you care about the people around you and not yourself, then you can work through all that. And I do care very much and I'm very appreciative. I'm very grateful for the people that I have around me. What about getting the family on board and getting some of the kids on board? How did that happen? I always thought my daughter would be a doctor. She was such a caring person. And then she decided to be a teacher, which didn't surprise me because I thought she would be a great, awesome teacher. And then she wrote, I remember my wife said, hey, did you read her application or the letter that she sent to law school to get in? I said, no. She said, well, you got to read it. And, and in that letter, it said, I want to do what my dad does. I want to be appreciated. People hug him and with tears in their eyes when the juries come back. And I want to make that difference in people's lives. So I didn't know it. I, I could have cared less what she did. And then my son, he graduated from top business school, went and got an MBA, going to go to law school. I thought for sure he'd go into the business world. But he came and said, you know, I really would like to do what you're doing. You're making a difference in people's lives. And I would like to, to do that. And he's now a partner in my law firm. My wife runs my firm, but she's now reducing her hours because we have three grandkids. And so she babysits my two of my grandsons on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And she's just loving it. It is a family affair, but we've got like 50 employees, over 50 employees, I think nine or 10 lawyers. My youngest son is a, a videographer. And so he does a lot of my office videos. He does my settlement videos. So to be able to work with my kids and my wife is just a great experience. Man, when you look back, I mean, I'm just curious, are you proud like just everything I mean, from, from kind of where you came from, those early beginnings to not just the family you have today, the team you have today, to the impact you're making? I think the thing I'm the most proud of is that I raised three really good people. The kids, I mean, it's not because of me, it's my wife, but we raised three really good people. And, you know, if that's all I could accomplish in this world, that would be worth it because they are good human beings. They're married to great human beings. They're really good people. And I think that's the thing I'm the most proud of. I think that as far as my own accomplishments, it's kind of weird because I'm never where I want to be. And so I can't say that I'm really proud of where I'm at because I'm not where I want to be. And so I don't think that ever ends. I remember, I think you were kind enough to send a bottle of champagne when I wrote the book, because after I got the book written and published, and I just saw it was still in the refrigerator this past weekend because I'd never celebrated that. And you know that as well as anybody. It's, you're never satisfied. You just keep moving. But I can say that if tomorrow was the day that the semi hit me, and I wasn't around the next day, that the thing that I would be proud of is my family. Yeah, it's, a, it's like being grateful, but never complacent. If you can have that type of mix, that's actually, that could be a very good thing. So the last thing I wanted to ask you about, and this is something where I imagine if someone's listening to this, they look up you, or they look up the firm, and they see somebody who's got you know hundreds of millions of dollars with these semi-truck cases, and they think, man, that's amazing, but what does it take? And you're someone who's been so consistent for so many years, just day after day, week after week. If you could just speak to some of that. No, I think perseverance is, is a key quality you've got to have. I mean, you're going to have some ups and downs, and you've got to stick with it. Whether you're talking about winning a case, 
There's no perfect case. If there is, that perfect case never gets to go to trial. The cases that you go to trial on always have blemishes and always have issues. And so if you're a person who looks at things negatively or just quits when you see a roadblock, you're not going to be a successful truck rock lawyer. You're not going to be a successful business person. You're going to have ups and downs in your business. I see so many lawyers that come to me and say, well, my SEO is not ranking high enough, so I'm switching companies. Or my mentors or my group of people I'm around is not working or whatever. My partners aren't working. I, I'm, I, I kick my partners out. I need a better partner. I mean, everybody's looking for a quick solution. And sometimes those things are necessary. But the reality is all too often people don't try for the, and they don't look at things for the long haul. You've got to invest in, and you've got to develop relationships. I'm very proud of my relationship that I have with Crisp. I'm very proud of the relationship I have with my employees. Those are all built over time. And I think you have to learn to trust other people, and then you have to invest in them, and then you've got to let those people do their jobs, whether it's your employees, your, your attorneys, or your vendors, or people you do business with. There's something in the water. There's something obviously you're doing right at Craig Kelly and Faultless because if I recall, there's a team member that you had fired who then asked to apply again, but for a different role. Yeah, we, we have. I mean, I've been so blessed. I've got three or four people here who left me and then came back. And they're key players in my firm. Uh, first of all, there's a lot of lawyers who would, their egos would never allow that. And to me, I just care about them as a human beings. If they want to go work somewhere else, that's fine for them. If they want to come back, that's fine. And but then I had an employee who actually I had to fire because she just she was nice, but she just couldn't do the job, and she reapplied for a different job. And that's not the first time that's happened. You know, I care very much about everybody here. I want them to succeed. And some of the people that are in this in my office are doing different jobs than they applied for because they're better at something else than what they thought. I take a lot of pride in is making a positive difference in people's lives. And that's what I do with my employees. You try to look at them, you try to help them, you try to figure out what's good for them. And maybe that's not being here. Maybe that's being in a different position here. But I think employees notice that. Employees get it. If you really care about them as a human, then they care about you as well. And even when they leave, I've got people who are judges. I always joke about how many lawyers come through my program and turn out to be corporate lawyers or real estate lawyers because they don't want to be trial lawyers because of the pressure. And yet they refer all their business to me. So it's been great. Even the ones that don't work out here are doing great. And I love seeing how they progress. Next up, we're revisiting my conversation with best-selling author, marketing expert, and the owner of the Savannah Bananas, Jesse Cole. His world-famous baseball team has captured the attention of millions of people around the world, resulting in a waitlist for tickets that's in the tens of thousands. Jesse's achieved this success by living out a simple but controversial mantra. Whatever's normal, do the exact opposite. Well, you're right. We shouldn't exist. I mean, you can't name any of our players. We have no advertisements at our ballpark. We play in a 1920 stadium. We are first run by interns. I mean, there's so many reasons why we shouldn't exist. We sell only one type of ticket. I mean, we do everything kind of countercultural to what the business does. But yeah, it's an absolute circus and a baseball game breaks out. And that's what we do. And six years ago, you know, I forgot that. When we first came to Savannah, we tried to fit in. And my wife and I were trying just to get anybody to come out to the games. And we were like everyone else. And you said, whatever's normal, do the exact opposite. We were doing the normal things. And we were failing. And so I've learned that if you really want to stand out, you got to go do the exact opposite of what everyone else is doing. And so the bananas are 
100% focused on fans first and entertainment. We have, you know, a senior citizen dance team called the Banana Nanas. We have a male cheerleading team called the Mananas. You know, we have breakdancing coaches. We have banana babies during games. We have a banana pep band. We have a player on stilts. We play in kilts. We do dances in the middle of the game. We do TikTok trends while the game's going on. It is all about entertainment. And now the biggest risk that we've taken is developing a brand new game called Banana Ball, which has really taken off. And it's all stemmed from the two words, fans first. So now you guys are selling out every game. And I can attest to this because before we started this podcast, I went to the website and I was trying to get tickets for an upcoming game. And it was like, all right, you're in position 192 or whatever it is in line, keep waiting. And I'm like, man, this is unbelievable. So ESPN, I think called you guys the greatest show in baseball. I mean, this is absolutely wild. Before we get into all that, I'm curious as to where your love of baseball really, where it came from. It seems like you've loved baseball all of your life. I did have a love for baseball. Now I have a love for what baseball could be. I don't love the current game of baseball. I think the current game of baseball is very challenged, but to go where the love started for me, you know, I was an only child, grew up in Massachusetts. My parents got divorced. My mother had some real challenges. And fortunately, my father got custody of me. And that was the one bond we had. Every day my dad came home from work, we'd go to the baseball field. He built a mound in my backyard so I could pitch. And every day I fell in love with the game more and more. You know, I was fortunate to be bat boy for the Red Sox for one game in Fenway when I was five years old. I got to pitch at Fenway when I was 20 years old in an all-star game. And it was everything. I really loved the game playing. Watching the game was different. So that was really the big aha moment happened for me is that watching the game was not nearly as fun as playing the game. And I wanted to create that same type of feeling that I had playing for everyone watching. And that's really where the 15 years of experiments happened to lead us to where we are today. So I want to fast forward to 2014 when you and your wife, Emily, who's who's been very instrumental to all of this progress, when you guys went to Grayson Stadium in Savannah. And at the time, I think this is the stadium that had been there since 1926. You all had a, a vision that nobody else seemed to have, if you could speak to that. Yeah, and I give credit to Walt Disney. I mean, he's famous for saying it's kind of fun to do the impossible. And the poster I have him, it says vision. And it says that quote below. Yeah, I mean, I proposed to her in front of a sold-out crowd with our team in Gastonia, had fireworks off in the middle of the game, delayed the game for like 20 minutes. The umpire's like, what are you doing? I'm like, this is our moment. And uh, she surprised me with a trip to Savannah. We went to a minor league game. There was less than 100 people in the ballpark Saturday night, beautiful night at the stadium. And it was the deadest environment I've ever seen. Like you could picture like a tumbleweed coming through like Kansas, coming through the ballpark. I mean, it was it was nothing. But I looked at the stadium. I saw what an opportunity. Savannah's a fun city, 14 million tourists, a 1926 ballpark that FDR gave a presidential address there. Babe Ruth and Hank Aaron played there. I said, there's something here. And so, yeah, I reached out to the commissioner of the Coastal Plain League, that the college league that we were in. And I said, you know, we want this market. And he said, sure, Jesse, whatever you say. And they left. They said they couldn't be successful there. They wanted a new stadium. And we convinced the city to give us a chance and, and got the keys on October 5th, 2015. In November of that year, you guys threw a launch party. I think 80 people showed up, mostly press. You sold two season tickets and the caterers for that event, I think they felt so bad for you, they didn't even send you a bill. Yeah, they literally gave us all the food and all the alcohol for free. They were like, because we were in this huge conference center and it was just nobody there. And we literally had an event. It was We made it free for everybody. We we're like, we're here, we're here. And like people were like, who are you? We don't care. Like we did, we sent personal invitations. We literally went to businesses' doors and gave them invitations. And like, I remember Emily tells a story, which isn't in the book. They, she walked into an ice cream place and they said, we're not interested. And she said, we're just giving you a free invitation. Like we're, we're your neighbor. We're not interested. And I was like, oh my God, they're not even interested. And we're giving them free stuff. 
everything worthwhile is an uphill climb, right? So from what I recall, you're five months out from opening day and things are really down to the wire. I think you and Emily got a call when you were at your best friend's wedding. What was that situation like? I was fired up. It was my college roommate's wedding. You know, we were all excited to have some fun and it's 4.45 on a Friday and we got a call from one of our team members that we just overdrafted our account and we're about to miss payroll. And we're like literally getting ready to go on the bus that Friday for the wedding. And Emily's like, okay, so quickly, like I transferred some money from my personal account to make sure we cover payroll like quickly before five o'clock. And we got in the, the bus to go to the wedding and we just were like dead silent looking at each other. And once we got in the party, we were like, all right, just have fun for Steve, you know, make it a good time. And we drove home from New Jersey the next day and around an hour in the car, Emily turns to me and says, uh, we just have to sell our house. And so we built our dream house in Charlotte and it was our dream house. We had a hot tub and fire bell because we had a lot of success with Gastonia. We were fortunate. We sold it and we emptied our savings account, emptied out and put the money into Savannah because we were over a million dollars in debt, put the money into Savannah and we got an air bed. And I remember the first time we were in town and we had to get food and Emily says, we only have $30 to go grocery shopping this week. And we went to Walmart with $30 and it was like, that's where we were just six years ago, which is, which is crazy. But I look back at it with fond memories now because I'm glad we went through it because it makes us appreciate where we are now more than anything. Man, and going through this journey with your wife, Emily, I mean, that in itself, and I say this as somebody who started my business with my wife, Jessica, what was that journey like? Were you two always on the same page? Was she always supportive? <laughs> Anybody who works together, if they say they're always on the same page, they're crazy. Because, you know, what draws you together as any marriage or couple is not always work. There's things that, that you're excited about, but it's also something different. And for us, work started consuming us. It became everything because we had to get out of the debt. We had to keep our team going. We had to. And so, yeah, it was challenges. I'm this crazy showman type promoter and Emily's the realist. And she's like, Jesse, we can't do that most of the time. And so we had to have those conversations and it was struggles for a while because we're both trying to pursue this and she was away from her family family. But the biggest thing that we learned is that let's stay in the lane that what we enjoy, what we love and what gives us energy. And so now, I mean, Emily is all about our people. She has 1% of our budget to spend on solely surprising and delighting our people. And that's 1% of top line. So if you have a very successful company that's grown, like that's growing every year, just to surprise and delight. She does that. And it makes me so proud. I help run the show and that makes her proud. And like we stay in each other's lanes. And I think that's, what's been really successful in us moving forward and making the difference that we're making. So then when it came to naming the team, like how did you end up deciding on the Savannah Bananas? On that November, that huge event with 80 people that showed up total, that monster event with the media that I said, uh, we need a team name that's dramatically different. And I was very specific. I go, we don't want anything that anyone's been called before. We don't want anything like, you know, an animal or whatever. And so what do we get? A thousand normal already named like the Braves. You guys could be the, you got the Savannah Braves, the Savannah Cardinals. I'm like, they've already been that. Like, the ports, the anchors, the sailors, the skippers, like it was just all generic names. And um, it wasn't until like two days before the contest ended, a 62 year old nurse put in bananas. And me and Emily and the team looked at each other like, that would be crazy. And then all of a sudden, Emily said, go bananas. And then like someone said, what if we can name the mascot split? And then someone said, what about the banana nanas? And we started like, just like kids, like, like you're picturing like a kindergarten class, like just rhyming stuff and like saying things that could do, like that's what we were doing. And we said, it'll create enough attention that enough people won't like it, but the people that know us, that know we're about having fun, they'll love it and it fits our brand. And so we decided to do it. And we spent two days working with our team on how to deal with the criticism because we were right on that February 25th. We, we got it pretty strong. 
Yeah. And it seems like throughout, you've always kept the fans involved, right? Whether it's crowdsourcing the name of the team or either other initiatives. In fact, I believe you even dedicate the book to the fans. I guess why that strategy and has that ever backfired in the sense that like, if we if we open this up to everybody, how do we know it's going to yield good ideas? <laughs> it's scary when you open things up to fans because you know generally if you put a thousand people together, they're gonna come to the middle. And for the bananas, a guy in a yellow tuxedo, I don't like to go to the middle. So if we made it a popularity contest, we would have been Savannah Braves. We would not have been the bananas. So we're selective on when we take just suggestions or when we do kind of a popularity vote, which we do for T-shirts, jersey designs, things like that that we know they're going to be actually buying. But no one was actually, the Savannah Bananas was our identity. So we had to be very specific with that. Before we do anything, we always ask, what would the fans think? What would the fans want? I mean, I think it was either Bezos or Howard Schultz that they said they always pictured an empty chair in the room. And we do the same thing. Do fans want to have ticket fees, convenient fees? You know, do fans want a $30 shirt to be $38.50 because of shipping and taxes? No. So we eliminate it and we don't know the answer how to do it. When I tell people this, they never believe like, like, really? I never even thought about that. You buy a $20 ticket from us or $25 ticket, it's $20 or $25. And not only is it all inclusive and we can get to that later, but we pay everyone's taxes. So we'll pay hundreds of thousands of dollars of people's taxes. And I don't know anybody. I mean, it's always just part of what you do. Here's your taxes. You pay, you get food, you pay taxes. You get drinks, you get taxes. You get tickets, you get taxes. We pay everybody's taxes for all their food, their merchandise, and their tickets. And I'm not trying to boast. I'm just saying, because I'm a fan, I want a $20 thing to be $20. I want a $5 beer to be $5. And so we put that perspective, even though we leave hundreds of thousands of dollars on the table, but that's our whole mentality. And we work for the fans. The name of our company is Fans First. We have to do, take actions to do that. And that's why we eliminate all ads in our stadium. It's everything we do. And the fans have certainly come out and supported you. So I guess to to take it back to opening day, you've got the team, you've got the stadium, you've got a name for the team, a plan. Now it's down to executing. What was opening day like? Because I think in the book you describe it as cursed and magical. <laughs> July 17, 1955 was when Disneyland opened. And they called that Black Sunday because everything went wrong at Disney. I mean, there was flooding. The cement wasn't poured right. People were getting their shoes stuck in the cement. I mean, over flooding. The bathrooms weren't working. It was a disaster. Ours was pretty close to that. It absolutely poured rain. We, we convinced enough people to come out because I think they were expecting us to fail. So it was a sold out crowd and it started pouring and people just rushed into the stadium. We didn't know how to like crowd control. So they just ran to the stadium. And so we didn't have food ready or anything. So we started getting food ready, but we were behind. And I mean behind. It was all inclusive because every game in Savannah, you get all your burgers, hot dogs. We went through 10,000 pieces of meat and we had about 2,000 ready. And people had to wait like two hours for food. It was bad. They rushed in. I mean, people were soaked. The whole ballpark was wet. It was just that sense of disaster. But at 830, when we finally started the game, an hour and a half later, and I looked up in the crowd, not one fan had left. And I was like, this is special. If I waited an hour and a half for food in the pouring rain, sorry, guys, I'm out of here. But they all wanted to give us a shot. And they were in banana costumes and they were ready. And I even had the banana nanas dance out in the rain, which was very funny. It was a weird ask to ask, can you guys, we're in a rain delay, can you just dance? It's raining, Jesse. Just are you interested? Okay, we'll do it. And like all these moments happened and it was very special. And we played, we were wearing green uniforms because we weren't quite ripe. And the team made six errors and played terrible. We lost poorly, but um, fans stayed. And there were a lot of magical stories from that night. And I left and said, you know what? If we were this bad at the operation, the execution, but they gave us a shot, we're going to be okay. And from that night on, that year, every game sold out. And we've sold out every game since. 
looking back at that, like, why do you think you got that initial buy-in from the fans? Like, meaning that, you know, they could have shown up and took a glance at what was going on, been like, what the hell is this? Like, what is, what is this whole situation all about? And then just walked out the door, but they didn't. Why do you think that was? What's your meaningful differentiator? So any company, what's your meaningful differentiator? The one thing that you think has the most impact in making you different. And, you know, there's a great book, uh, Francis Frey, forget Uncommon Service. And it says you need to be willing to be bad at certain things, but to be amazing at certain other things. And so we chose the show. And as bad as the food operation was, as bad as the regular operation, parking, all everything else, to see players greeting the fans when they came in, to watch the players dance during the game, to throw a first banana instead of a first ball, to lift a banana baby up and sing, na, savanya, nahi, you know, in front of the whole crowd. They all walked out, I believe, and said, I saw something I've never seen before in a baseball game. I was thoroughly entertained and it didn't have anything to do with the baseball game because we played terrible. That became our meaningful differentiator, the show, the entertainment. We're at a 1926 ballpark. This ain't Cowboy Stadium where there's chandeliers and marble. We will never win that game. We will never win the best food in the game. We'll never win the nicest stadium. But I believe we could win the greatest show in sports. And so that's at that day that proved that was what we're going to focus on. And that's what fans come for. And they'll sit in an old ballpark. They'll have a regular hot dog and uh, they'll watch the show. And fans have really reacted well to that. If you enjoyed hearing about Jesse's story and want to learn how to stand out in your market, drive explosive growth, and inspire fanatical loyalty, then you don't want to miss your opportunity to see Jesse Cole live and in person this November on the field of Mercedes-Benz Football Stadium in Atlanta, Georgia at the number one law firm growth conference on earth. That's right. I'm talking about the Game Changers Summit in Atlanta. And since you're a supporter of this podcast, I'll hook you up. Simply use code podcast when you purchase your tickets at crispsummit.com to receive a special discount off any ticket. That's code podcast. Next up, we look back at my conversation with Kevin O'Leary, entrepreneur, investor on ABC's Shark Tank, and known by millions around the world as the one and only Mr. Wonderful, who you'll actually also see at the Game Changers Summit this November. As a result of his bold yet strategic moves as a venture capitalist, Kevin has achieved the level of wealth and notoriety that many could only dream of. But he has no plans to ride off into the sunset anytime soon. How does he combat complacency and keep the fire burning? When you become an entrepreneur, it's if you're going to be successful, it's never about the greed of money. It's because you're so passionate about what you're doing. And if you are that way and you're not pursuing money, you're pursuing freedom, I mean, to a certain extent, if you love to get up in the morning and work, you're, you're setting yourself free. I, I, I enjoy everything I do. I don't, but the whole idea was at that time, we were working seven days a week, 20 hours a day. I was flying all over the world. We were growing like a weed and really, really competitive and being very successful and growing market share. And we loved doing it. We had a really focused team of, of uh, people that had been together for almost you know, eight years. And we were brothers and sisters on this mission to be successful. And then we sell our company one day for $4.2 billion. And I remember that day, it was in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And we all showed up for work again at seven in the morning the next day and looked at each other and said, what do we do now? <laughs> I mean, we were all filthy rich, but nobody cared because it wasn't any different than than what we had been doing for seven years. And, and it was a very uh, difficult time for people to try and figure out what's next uh, because they didn't want to stop working. They, they, that was who they were. And I was in the same boat. And I've asked many other people since then that have achieved success, 
what happened? And, and, and they don't talk about, you know, the day they sold their business. That's, that's not really that consequential. They talk about the day they started their business and why they started it. And for me, I'll never forget, you know, what took me on that journey was I was in high school and I was working, and I've told this story many times before, but I'll tell it again because it's so relevant to others. My first job was working at an ice cream store called Magoo's Ice Cream Parlor. And there was a woman that owned it, and I, the only reason I wanted the job is the girl I was interested in in my class was working at the shoe store right across the mall. And I figured, you know, if we got out at five o'clock, I could kind of hang out with her. It was a good strategy for dating. And that's what happened. The first day I show up, there she is. She's waiting for me to come out. And the owner says to me, listen, um, before you leave, scrape all the gum off the Mexican tiles because the store had these beautiful Mexican tiles on the floor. But when you're scooping ice cream, you always give people tasters on a little wooden stick and they take their gum out of their mouth and throw it on the floor. So it'd be a big black mess of sticky gum, you know, uh, on the floor. And I, she said to me, you gotta scrape the gum off the floor before you leave. Now, I thought that would be bad for me because I'm, the girl was looking at me and I'd be on my knees with a scraper and I said to her, look, this is not what you hired me for. You hired me to be a scooper and I'm not a, not a scraper. I'm willing to scoop, but I'm not gonna scrape. I thought it'd be very bad for my brand, you know, to be on my knees scraping in terms of the whole dating thing. And she said, no, 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 no. I, I own this store, you're my employee, you'll do whatever I say. I said, well, not in the case of scraping, no can do. She said, well, how about this, you're fired. I didn't know what that was, <laughs> I had no idea. I said, what does that mean? She said, get back on your bike, go home, don't come back here. Here's your pay and cash for the day. And, and I said, what, just because I won't scrape? She said, yeah. When you're an employee and I tell you what to do, you gotta do it. Now you've been insubordinate and I'm firing you. I was so humiliated that I knew that moment, that second, for the rest of my life, I would never work for anybody. I didn't care how I was gonna swing that, I just would never do it. It was so against my whole DNA to be treated that way. And I learned that moment that in the world, there's two types of people. The people that scrape the stuff off the floor and the people that own the store. For me, I wanted to be the store owner. That's sort of what set me on my journey. And I never worked for anybody again. But years later, you know, having told that story, uh, we took cameras back there from one of the networks I was working on to find her, to thank her, because she was the reason that I, at that time, I could afford to bulldoze them all if I wanted. And it, the only reason I had, had achieved success was she pushed me in that direction with that unique situation. And that's what I talk to entrepreneurs about. There's that moment. And just a couple of years ago, just to end this story, I get a FedEx envelope. Inside of it is a brick. It's got a blue paint on it. It was a piece of the mall. They bulldozed it to turn it into condos and someone else had heard the story and found me and sent me a piece of it. I thought that was full circle. So there's a degree of irony to it, isn't it? I mean, it, many entrepreneurs aren't very employable individuals and it's like you you will trade that in and instead say, I'm gonna go work 20 hours a day for years, right? Because this is what I won't do, but yet when I own the business, I'll do whatever it takes. Exactly. I mean, the whole point is Entrepreneurship is not a destination, it's a journey. It's not for everyone. It's not easy, it, it's hard. But the whole idea is personal freedom. Today, 
each day, and I, I tell my students when I teach this, I say, look, the whole idea of being an entrepreneur is to get to a place in your life where you do not have to pick up the phone when it rings, that nobody has control over your destiny anymore. If the phone is ringing and you don't want to answer it, you don't have to. And today I block my day in 30-minute segments. I work with this wonderful woman named Nancy Chung and a whole team of other people. But I look at the week each, you know, Monday morning, and I say, okay, what do we got, Nancy? Let's, let, let's show me this week. What do we got? Because she's booking all this stuff. And if I see something I don't like, I just say I'm not doing it. That's where you want to get. That's where you want to get. That's not about money. That's about personal freedom. I want to spend my time doing things that are meaningful to me, and that's, that's the journey of an entrepreneur. Throughout all your experience, I'm curious, obviously our, our listeners are primarily business owners. What are the main things you look, you look for, you look at when deciding whether to invest in a business? Well, certainly these days, because I've been taught through the dynamics of this pandemic, which everybody's been through, I like to invest in entrepreneurs that have the ability to pivot, that are able to take a horrendously difficult situation and somehow fix it. I don't care how they fix it, Obviously, I want them to do it in a legal way, and that's the nature of business. You have to play by the rules, and they, they do. But I want people that can pivot, and that's the most important thing for me, because I don't care what your business plan is, it's not gonna work out that way. It never does. It never does. You gotta be flexible. And so that's number one for me. I like to invest in entrepreneurs that are disruptive, that are doing things differently. Now, if you tell me you have another hot sauce, I have no interest in investing in you. I don't want to invest in another hot sauce. The hot sauce industry is completely fragmented into zillions of hot sauces. Who cares? We don't need another hot sauce. I don't care what your granny's recipe was. I don't want another hot sauce. Or a soup. Or another soda pop. You know, that, that kind of stuff is not interesting to me. But when I see a great idea, like a base pause, here it is again, that's a, that's a, well, I didn't think it was a great idea at the time, but I thought it was great TV, but wow. 100 million, that's pretty good. So what has been, I mean, throughout Shark Tank, I'm curious, what's been your best investment? The best investment was a deal called Plated, which sold for 340 million, also my deal. I've had some extraordinary outcomes on Shark Tank, so people should understand the real secret sauce of it is that because it goes into syndication and it's on all around the world, hundreds of millions of people see the show as it just keeps playing. And that reduces customer acquisition costs dramatically for the goods and services that are seen on the show. So the reason, you know, something like Base Paws or Bloomland, or I'm just looking for some of the other deals, like Wicked Good Cupcakes, for example, which just got acquired also by Hickory Farms. Love Pop, greeting cards. I mean, all of these things are seen on the show and people buy them. And so you don't have to pay to acquire the customer. They're, they're, they're acquired by television. It's the most powerful commercial in the world. That's how it works. That's why it works. And that's why we can create millionaires year in, year out. So is there ever a situation where you have an entrepreneur come on there and let's say it's, you know, it's not a massive business, but you can take a relatively large stake in the business for a fairly small amount, maybe a hundred thousand or a couple hundred thousand. And you know, because this is going to get millions of viewers, if nothing else, you either make your money back uh, just immediately, just from the episode airing, even, you know, regardless of what happens moving forward from the company, does that ever influence your decision-making when, when you're deciding to invest? 
Well, it does, and often that happens, not just for me, for all the sharks. I mean, the product is immensely popular because it's interesting and it's demonstrated on the tank. You get eight minutes of primetime television. People buy it right then and there, and most companies are smart. They do a Shark Tank night deal, a special bundle or something. They know they're gonna air, so they say, look, you know, when the commercial hits, just go to this site, two for one. And they sell millions of dollars. I mean, I, I've had deals where I've made my money back in a couple of weeks because the product was so popular. That was the case with Wicked Good Cupcakes. First royalty deal on Shark Tank history. Everybody thought I was nuts. You know, I got 25 cents, or 50 cents a jar, actually, until, you know, it was supposed to take three years to get my money back. I got it back in 90 days. One of the most successful deals in Shark Tank history. So I've been meaning to tell you about that. That You made your money back. That was us. That was my family. So we had, uh, after that episode aired, uh, we've been probably buying it every month or so. And just most recently, even for, you know, for Mother's Day, I was getting it for my wife. So I love that product. What about on the other side? I, I'm curious, like in terms of like bad investments from, from Shark Tank, what, what's been, I mean, I, if you're able to disclose either what have been some of the worst investments, or if you don't want to name particular companies, maybe some of the lessons learned from those investments? Yeah, you know, there's, Great ideas, I think the, the best lesson is great ideas are a dime a dozen. Executional skills are really hard to find. The ability to pair executional skills with a great idea is what you're looking for because then you're going to have somebody that can drive the business forward and that's the key. And so the, where I've lost money on Shark Tank is discovering later on that the entrepreneur I backed was a terrible jockey and couldn't run a business you know, if they tried. They just had no executional skills and ultimately, of course, they're going to fail. And that happens. I mean, all venture investment is risky. You're going to get some winners, you're going to get some losers. But the whole idea is the returns are so geometrically higher than traditional investing, like 8% or 9% in the stock market, you get 1,000x or 100x or 200x on a deal in Shark Tank, you know, like, like a base pause or like a uh, plated that started in some guy's garage and then three years later, sells for $340 million. Those are the kind of returns that pay for all your mistakes. And that's why you do it. You, and you can't know with certainty what's gonna work and what isn't. You simply can't know. And so you gotta do a bunch of deals and then sit back and let it happen. And as I'm sure as, you, as your brand has grown and, and even just being on TV all the time, I imagine you have your share of critics and people who disagree with you and don't, uh, don't like what you have to say. And there's going to be a lot of people listening to this podcast that they themselves, as, as they've been growing their business, they're getting more critics. Either how do you deal with it? Do you just ignore it? Or, or even dealing with things like self-doubt? What, what's your approach to that? You know, I had a mentor years ago named Jerry Patterson. He was my partner in one of my first businesses. He's dead now, but I won't forget him. He was actually an agent that took Russian hockey players and put them on the original six teams. Boston, Philly, Montreal, Toronto, Detroit. And he was the first to bring the Russians in. You know, there was a, very con a lot of controversy, but they were amazing hockey players, and Jerry was the guy that did that. He took a lot of flack for that. You know, there was the whole taint of communism and all that stuff. I mean, you think about Russia's gone back to where it was back in those days in terms of branding, but here's what he said to me once. He said, you know, Kevin, the more successful you are, the more critics you're going to have, and they're gonna be very vocal. Critics are incredibly noisy. If you're to be effective, you're gonna to have to figure out how to create a filter where you don't take any of your energy and apply it to that noise. If they distract you for one second of your day, you're a loser and they're, they're a winner. Critics 
are just noise. That's all they are. Now, there's nothing wrong with, you know, listening to what they're talking about, but if you're spending your energy, you're stopping and you're not moving your goals forward because you're listening to a critic, you're wasting your time. That's always stuck in my mind. I always have my little Jerry on my shoulder when some guy or woman is nattering about I did something they don't like. Here's what I can guarantee you with certainty. I don't care. It's not relevant to my goals to achieve success for my customers, my business, my investors, my objective. If you don't like it, I don't care. I thank Jerry for that. And I've taught this to my kids who get upset. You know, they get upset when somebody criticizes their work or something. You gotta make yourself like an oyster in a pearl. You don't care, because you're coated. You've coated yourself with protection. You figured that out. And this is another lesson I teach my young buckaroos in engineering cohorts that are graduating, because a third of the class can be entrepreneurs. You've got to figure out how to learn to not care. You just don't care. And I'm going to say that to anybody that asks. We close out this episode by looking back at my conversation with New York Times bestselling author, award-winning journalist, and one of the world's leading experts on human performance, Stephen Kotler. Through his research at the Flow Research Collective, Stephen's discovered that we have the power to get our biology to work for us instead of against us. There are all sorts of so-called natural advantages. I should also like to point out that every one of the natural advantages comes with a built-in disadvantage, right? Let's say you have a very fast brain. One of the reasons that happens, processing speed is super fast, is norepinephrine. That's fantastic for processing speed, but norepinephrine is essentially anxiety and fear. So you've got a really fast brain, but you're crazy neurotic. That's a common pairing. So, But here's what I'll tell you at a macro level. I, more than probably anybody else alive, have spent my career interviewing people who accomplished the impossible, being in the room when the impossible became possible as often as possible. And I will tell you that none of the people who accomplished them started out extraordinary. They started out unbelievably ordinary. And the path to impossible, let's back up and just say two things. One, what we call peak performance is really nothing more than getting our biology to work for us rather than against us. We all share a lot of overlap in biology. We can all use the system the way it was designed to work. Let's just talk cognitive peak performance. Your listeners are lawyers and entrepreneurs. And when you talk about the, the biology of cognitive peak performance, there's four categories of skills. There's a category that sits under the heading of motivation, another under the heading of learning, a third under the heading of creativity, and a final one under the heading of flow, which is the technical term for the optimal state of consciousness. We feel our best and we perform our best. And if you're not familiar with the term or what I'm talking about, it's any of those moments of rapt attention and total absorption, those in the zone moments, you get so fixated, so focused on what you're doing, everything else just starts to disappear and melt away and all aspects of performance, mental and physical, tend to go through the roof. We call that flow. There's a bunch of reasons why we can give precise psychological definitions. I can give you precise neurobiological definitions, but we're, we're playing fast and loose, and it's, it's essentially flow. So flow is the last thing. And the way I always sort of paint this picture together, if everybody's like, why those four categories? In any situation, motivation gets you into the game. Learning allows you to continue to play. Creativity 
is how you steer, especially when you're going after sort of impossible challenges where like, how the hell do I get there? And these could be business challenges. Like how the hell do we settle this case? Or these could be, you know, how do I run a sub four mile? It doesn't like it's the same kind of problem. Creativity is how we steer and flow is how we turbo boost the results beyond all sort of recognition and, you know, and normal expectation. So as we talk about impossible, because I know, I know we'll use this, this word a lot, you've differentiated impossible with a capital I from impossible with a lowercase I. So if you could speak to that. We've been talking with the athletes. That was impossible with a capital I, right? This stuff had never been done before and suddenly it was being done. Nobody sets out to accomplish capital I impossible. Or I've met very few people that do. Usually what they do is they go after small I impossible, which is those things that we think are impossible for ourselves. Rising out of poverty, overcoming trauma, being an entrepreneur, starting a business. These are all versions of, of small I impossible. And you know, take an ordinary person, put them on a path to use the tools of peak performance to accomplish capital I impossible. And you, as soon as you do one, right, anybody who's had a little bit of success knows this. You're like, oh shit. I did that. What else can I do? And you go after another and you go after another. And what else can I do? And what else can I do? And over time, this is how you end up accomplishing capital I impossible. It's just something that happens on the path. Like you go into the back country with, with folks every now and again, somebody's like, oh yeah, today's the day I'm going to jump this or do this. But often they're just doing what they do. And like impossible is what happens along the way. So in your book, The Art of Impossible, you talk a lot about goals. And I know you hinted at this earlier, but you note that like fear and goals are the basic building blocks of our reality. And, and I'm curious about the fear part, because whenever you spoke about peak performers, fear always seemed to serve as like a directional arrow. A little bit of fear, a little bit of the neurochemical norepinephrine, a little bit of the neurochemical cortisol is great. It amplifies learning. It drives attention. It does a lot too much and you have a really pro big problem that will block flow, for example, blocks creativity, blocks performance, is a problem for memory and so forth. Usually what happens in peak performance is you push on your skills to the utmost. That tends to drop you into flow. You get to do more and go farther than you've gone before. With peak performers, they start to figure out that, well, too much for your is problematic. And so you have to do a lot of emotional regulation work. It's why you see so much meditation, exercise, gratitude. These are all practices that retune the nervous system and lower anxiety. Peak performers tend to do that. One of the reasons they want to do that is the brain is an energy hog, uses 25% of our energy, right? But it's 2% of our body mass. It's got a fixed energy budget also. We spend most of that budget on focus. Right, that's a lot. Paying attention is a lot of that budget. So anytime you get focus for free, it's a big deal. It's a big energy savings. Fear, if you're not overwhelmed by it, it's fantastic. Gives you focus for free. So I, I'll give you just a personal example of what this looks like in the real world. Uh, for example, in my book, Stealing Fire, that was a, you can't tell because I, I hope because I did my job, but it was an incredibly information dense book. Most sentences are like one fact per sentence. If you're reading a really factually dense science magazine like Wired, you can get two or three sometimes. We had in Stealing Fire sometimes three to four facts per sentence. This is a really complicated writing challenge, communication challenge. And I had to study, for example, uh, a science writer by the name of Steven Pinker, who's at Harvard, who uh, he's funny. 
right? He's, he's actually a, f- a very talented, funny writer, but he writes very information dense sentences. So I had to like, I did what I called like the pinker edit on my writing to figure out how to tell that story effectively. And it scared me because I'd never done anything quite like that. Like I like to set those sort of challenges inside the book because a book is a long slog, man, two, three, four years. And my books, some of my books, the research will span decades. You know, after that long, you got to sometimes do extra things to hold attention. Fear's one of them. And I've seen this, you know, with all top performers and it's very common in athletics, but I think, you know, you so see it in entrepreneurship too. So when you were working on The Art of Impossible, I guess the, the key message of the book is really that we're capable of much more than we may think. And in being able to do, you know, to an extent, I'd say almost the privileged research of you know being able to be around world-class athletes and entrepreneurs and the U.S. Special Forces, were there certain habits that you either adopted or even eliminated through this experience of even writing the book and doing all this research? The answer is yes. There's a ton of stuff along the way that started to shift. It keeps evolving. Some of it, you know, more of it was direct outcome of the science that I was involved, that we did. One random example that this is, you're looking for something deep, but years ago when I was breaking lots of bones, Laird Hamilton, the big wave surfer, sat me down and said, Stephen, I know this is obvious. And I was really young and young athletes don't get this. It's like, look, there's strength, there's stamina, and there's flexibility. And if you don't train all three, one of them is going to break you. And I had, I wasn't training flexibility. And as soon as I started doing yoga way back in the nineties, when I was like the only man in yoga classes for a good decade, right? It really like, it stopped breaking bones unless I did something catastrophically stupid. That's one sort of random example. The latest one has been that I stopped, I shifted from doing Focus meditation, which I had done for years, both for anxiety and for focus and, and, and a bunch of other stuff, emotional regulation, to using uh, love and kindness meditation, which is a, a kind of – it came out of the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. Richie Davidson, the University of Wisconsin, did extensive research on it. But I found it for helping you unearth habitual patterns of behavior that are kind of invisible – it's the most effective tool I've ever seen, which is why I like I, I've been meditating for 30 years and sort of started playing with this a couple of years ago. And just I suddenly was like, why did it? I, it always felt so kind of silly to me. Like, this is just not for me. Loving kindness meditation is essentially praying for people, right? Like, and I wasn't raised in, in, in that kind of environment. So like that was a very foreign thing for me, but it's it works unbelievably well. And the neuroscience of why it works unbelievably well has become a huge topic of investigation for us as a collective. So brain takes in a ton of information every second, right? And it's got to figure out what's important, what's not important. So what what do I pay attention to? One of the things that tells us what to pay attention to is what psychologists call our sphere of caring, our friends, our family. Maybe it's our dogs, our, you know, our pets, our town, our, whatever it is, we have a sphere of caring. And empathy, by the way, is what shrinks it and widens it. That's how we move it in and out. But when something sits inside your sphere of caring, we pay attention to it. Your brain says, oh, this is, you know, we care about this. Give us more information. And you end up with more information coming in. And that sort of becomes one of the 
bases for this. So like empathy is sort of a secret weapon in that, like if you can expand empathy, it expands multi-perspectival thinking and all takes place in a part of your brain called the temporal paralysis junction that just does perspective taking, right? Like what angle are you looking at a problem from? But part of that solution is empathy, right? Like what do you care about? And then your brain says, okay, you're going to get this information and you get slightly different information. And you got to remember, it's like your tiny micro bits. Attention is 126 bits. That's all you can focus on at any one time. It's this tiny slice of the millions of bits of information that come in every second. We see 126 bits. So like if perspective can widen, you can get slightly different bits than other people. That's sort of one of the advantages there. I want to give a huge thank you to every guest who's joined me so far this season on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. And I want to thank you for listening to this podcast and your commitment to learning and growing as a leader. If you found this episode valuable, here are three free ways that I can help you grow your law firm. Number one, download the first chapter of my book absolutely free at gamechangingattorney.com. Number two, you can shoot me a text at 404-531-7691 and I'll answer any question that you've got for me. And finally, number three, if you can leave this podcast a five-star review, it'll help us gain access to more influential thought leaders and bring their lessons learned here to you. For more information on this episode, see the show notes in your podcast app or visit gamechangingattorney.com. Thank you.